Europe was declining actually since World War II pretty much. Our status declined, 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 declined. And at a certain point now, we are now at the juncture to decide, do we accept it to get entirely marginalized or do we scratch the curve? From my point of view, we'll grab this opportunity, grow together and get out of that. Hello and good day. Uh, I am James Michichi and welcome to the 1CA podcast, which is part of the Civil Affairs Association and the Unomia Journal uh, Media Enterprise. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Today, our guest is Lieutenant Colonel Matthias Vasinga, who is an Austrian officer for the Austrian Armed Forces. And today we'll be discussing uh, the role of Austria in the European security sector. We'll be discussing NATO and Austria's interaction as a partner nation force, and also his recent time as part of the IMET program, which for those that are not in, uh, aware of that, is the exchange program between uh, officers from our allies, partners, and fellow armed forces that comes to the United States. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vasinga has recently completed CGSOC and ILE. So we'll be talking about a lot of those comments. So, sir, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation, James. So without further ado, let me introduce uh, Lieutenant Colonel here, Wasinga, and talk about some of his amazing accomplishments and his resume. So as stated, he is a Austrian Lieutenant Colonel in the Austrian Armed Forces. His education includes, but is not limited to, the U.S. Army Command General Staff College, where he was at Fort Leavenworth, which we'll be discussing. He has a Ph.D. in inter interdisciplinary legal studies from the University of Vienna, and he also attended the Austrian Armed Forces Joint Staff course and has a degree in project management. Some of his uh, operational experiences include serving as the chief of staff, the multinational battle group West in Kosovo. He was a staff officer at the European Naval Force Command. Uh, in Romania, and a company commander in the Austri Austrian Battalion of the United Nations Disengagement and Observer Force in Syria. Additionally, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bossinga has multiple publications in both books and journals, and has recently started his own journal, which we'll be discussing later on in, the dis in this thing. Uh, so without further ado, uh, if you don't mind, just can you talk about kind of the Austrian Armed Forces for our, our listeners and talk about the size, the composition, and kind of the role within your nation for them. Thank you again for the invitation. Um, it's my pleasure to talk a bit about the Austrian Armed Forces now to make you understand that in Austria we have a quite different concept how to compile the Armed Forces since you are a pure professional force, uh, pretty much excluding our National Guard. Uh, we run a conscription force in Austria meaning that the nucleus of the Austrian Armed Forces is a professional standing army, uh, which is pretty much the size of 20,000 soldiers, put it like that, including civilian employees and soldiers. Additionally, we have a draft concept, the conscripts, and a quite big reserve force. So in case of mobilization, the Austrian Armed Forces grow up to something like 55,000 soldiers. That sounds quite marginal to US ears. Uh, bearing in mind that Austria is pretty much half the size of the state of Kansas, and we're something like 8.5 million people, this is what we can do. Uh, in the Austrian Armed Forces, we run component commands, land forces, special operation force, logistic forces. We run, for sure, an air force and a cyber command. We have a joint forces command, since we're a neutral state, so we're a NATO partner. However, our national security strategy and our foreign policy is driven by neutrality. That means and kind of implies that we run all levels of command pretty much on the national level. 
since we don't subordinate national forces entirely to NATO if Article 5 would be evoked. So those kind of the wave tops. Oh, excellent. So and you said that conscription, do you have universal conscription in Austria? Does everybody join the reserve force at a certain age, men and females? Is that how that works? It's called kind of a general conscription. However, it's just applicable for men. So just men have to do the conscription. They get drafted usually between 18 to 35 years so of life. And then they do a conscription, which is in this very moment limited to six month service. Just recently, we kind of uh, incorporated a possibility that people extend the service for additional three months since like in the US as well, due to COVID, a recent uh, terror attack we had in Vienna, the army is kind of involved in, in, in missions internally. So as I mentioned previously, we have 20,000 soldiers in the standing army. In this very moment, today we have 8,000 soldiers employed in missions. Out of those 8,000, just something like 800 are in theater in 17 missions abroad. And the rest, 7,200, are employed within Austria in internal missions, doing border security, supporting when it comes to the COVID crisis, doing protection of infrastructure due to terror. This is pretty much how it works. When I think of Austria, I think of mountain skiing. You guys have an, an amazing history of, you know, Olympic gold and multiple nor, uh, winter sports. So is uh, now, and I've seen this in the past, do you guys have like ski troopers? Is that a big part of your thing? I know Austrian children have to learn skiing in, in school. Is that brought over to the military as well? <laughs> so that's quite a nice rumor. Unfortunately, nowadays people don't, not, not all Austrians are capable of skiing anymore. Uh, but yes, it's true. So, out of our landscape, approximately 80% uh, are mountainous area in the Alps. Our, we run four land brigades, the land forces. In these land brigades, there's one brigade, so 25% of the army, uh, specialized on, on mountainous warfare. And when it comes to the Austrian understanding of mountainous warfare, it's not like a little bit hilly or something like that. It's pretty much really like the Rocky Mountains. So, yes, we, we have quite specialized forces for, for, for the mountainous area. And all other... Uh, land brigades are for sure capable of, of fighting in, in, in mountainous areas as well. It would just seem based on the terrain, that would be a must. I, I know the Italian Alpinis are very similar in the Northern Italy in terms of their training. And I, well, I would wonder if you guys do cross training with them at all with the, the Alpini forces in Italy, because you guys share such a common border for defense and stuff like that. So yes, we, we run on a regular basis with, with partners and with yeah, strategic partners exercises. We have an liaison officer at NATO Center of Excellence for Mountain Warfare as well. Additionally, we run something like a smaller Center of Excellence for Mountain Warfare in Saarfelden. Um, so th that's pretty much what we kind of we like to show off with because we're extremely good in doing that. Yeah, and like I said, your your Olympic your Olympic record definitely shows it as well. So. <laughs> uh, so uh, follow up on that. We, we we talked about obviously Italy being a NATO. A member and in your introduction of the Austrian Armed Forces, you discuss kind of the unique role Austria has as you know a neutral nation, but also a partner in security with that. So you yourself, having served on a, a multiple NATO command positions, how was that role? Was it challenging to try to articulate that to NATO partners who don't quite like? Well, you're part of NATO, but you're not part of NATO. Or was that an easy uh, part of your security strategy? Just people are used to countries like Austria, and I believe Sweden is very similar in the in this construct. There's two sides to argue that. So the first one is the internal, how to how to sell certain things to to people in Austria. The neutrality is an integral part of our self understanding, pretty much since 1955. 
most of the Austrians like me grew up in an Austria that was always neutral. It's, it's part of our personal understanding how, how we are, understand ourselves. To a certain extent, it's limited us when, when it comes to contributing to NATO operations. On the other hand side, there's for sure uh, the fact that we always understood ourselves as part of the Western community. So we're always been more affiliated to the West than to the former East, let's put it like that. Um, we joined Partnership for Peace quite early. Although we always expressed quite directly that we have no interest to become an ally. That's something a little bit different when it comes to Sweden, since Sweden said from the very beginning, okay, we're a neutral state, then they changed to we are not in an alliance, so they moved a little bit closer to NATO. The major, uh, major benefit we see from our partnership for peace is that we achieve interoperability with the alliance. We are, due to our national security strategy and our understanding about the security and defense, those are terms that have global relevance. We want to contribute to peace management worldwide and interoperability is key if you want to do something like that. So since 1965, the Austrian Armed Forces is missions abroad. We do that under the umbrella of the OSCE, UN, EU, and NATO. So our partnership for peace with NATO, our partnership, I would say it's a reciprocal benefit. NATO gains a partner who is willing to focus on certain areas such as the Balkans and the Middle East. And our benefit is for sure that we can participate in exercises and increase, improve our interoperability. I'm looking at your um, some of your operational uh, assignments, and it seems to be that not only you have the, your Austrian-specific assignments, but you're very well diverse across the NATO uh, operational construct. We're looking at some of the battle groups, and then obviously your integration in the observer force in Syria. So it definitely shows that your armed forces is a valuable added member of NATO, but not as a treaty, but as a partner. So that's exactly. I think that's in its it's interesting. It's a very unique construct that Austria brings to our partnerships there. <laughs> so now we, you've talked about some of the, the goals of the Austrian security, you know, getting regionally aligned, collective European security. Can you touch on from your perspective, and obviously this is your personal perspective, um, what are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities in European security right now? Like, like most of European states, and as mentioned in the European uh, security strategy, the major threats nowadays perceived and existent uh, for European nations simply derive from an increasing terror threat. We have an increased level of renationalization, which weakens not only alliances such as NATO, but as well supranational organizations like the European Union itself, which is at the end of the day a vital threat. It's always mentioned that migration as well contributes to destabilizing Europe. Additionally, climate change and things like that. So all of those things are mentioned as deep threats. From my personal assessment, this destabilization is fueled to a certain extent by um, this near-peer great power competition that is upcoming as well. When it comes to Europe, that's when it comes to armed forces and military, pretty much the so-called Russian threat. So a more courageous Russia in the East, destabilizing Europe at its seams, the borderlines. Additionally, on an economic frontier, I would call it, it's China that's intruding and weakening the supranational organization, European Union itself, by approaching all European nations on the national level, on the bilateral level, instead of with the European Union. So it splits up the cohesion pretty much in Europe. 
um, which weakens again the entire construct. So I would say personally, the Austrian and me, do we have something like a threat deriving from those nations? I would see it like that. I wouldn't see it like that. Uh, there's not this direct threat. We are not a threat that Russia or China will invade Austria. However, in our national security strategies, clearly mentioned that we execute our national security strategy within the framework of the European Union. That's crucial for us. And a weak European Union, the end of the day, leads to a weakened security situation for Austria and threats derived from that weakness. I would like to follow up on one thing. You mentioned China and um, some of the economic aspects of the bilateral rather than going to the multilateral construct that is the European Union and the customs union and all those very important things that allow that cohesive monetary economic zone. How does Austria or other nations, and this is just view when, for example, Italy, and this is once again your personal opinion, goes off and becomes a one belt, one road initiative as a single entity within that government. Is that something that concerns or is that just, okay, that's within their rights? The end of the day, and I guess that's the Achilles heel of all of that, it is for sure the right to do all of that, as it was the right of Greece, for example, to sell the major parts of the harbor of Piraeus to China. So everybody can do what he wants to. The thing is that the end of the day, the urge for this cohesion within European nations and the European Union will one day be that huge that we will understand that certain decisions we cannot take back. Personally, yes, it's up to the nation to decide that. However, the perception within the European Union was we're doing something wrong. And the wrong thing is that we accept that, that they, on a bilateral level, approach us. That's the issue, I would say. Oh, I know that. Thank you very much. It's, it's a, it is a unique perspective from an American standpoint, because while we are a federalist society with different states, they're not individual nations. And we do have a single line. Well, the EU as a customs union onto itself is kind of an interesting construct for us to understand from especially an economic perspective, not just the security yeah. side. So Brexit with the UK leaving the EU. Do you feel that that is going to make the EU stronger as they consolidate around the, the lack of the British market or some of those access points into, the, into England? Or do you feel that it's going to be an opportunity for Russia or other malign actors to try to do information operations to separate the different parts of the remaining community? My personal point of view, the Brexit illustrated that, again, this Achilles heel is understood by all major players on this planet. It weakens the European Union from my point of view, since we illustrated that there is no cohesion. There are weak points, and if you push certain buttons long enough and hard enough, you will break up this supranational organization. I think that Great Britain was an incredible essential part, a member of the European Union. They always had kind of a counter voice within the European Union, something which was balancing. And I see that, that this tension between nations that leads to a development at the end of the day. And leaving, leaving the European Union, well, that's a, that's a loss for us at the end of the day. And I'm still on a personal level convinced it's a loss for Great Britain as well. All those external powers who don't see the European Union as a military actor, but so far had to understand that it's an economic power, this supranational organization, understood now even more, you can break that up. You can marginalize it by simply pushing these national buttons. And that combined with the threat, as mentioned previously, of this increasing renationalization, um, 
gives everybody the wounded point within Europe, go on that one. Go on that one, you split it up, and then you just have these small nations. Thank you. That's a very important point to look at. And so we've looked kind of at more of a pessimistic side of the ongoings in the EU and the European security sector. So I'll change it up and say, where are some really big opportunities where the Austria uh, and other like-minded Western liberal nations in the European sector have opportunities to advance um, their goals, their interests in the name of good, in the name of this great collective security, this great collective economic union? I would even say some of the darkest hours that are the opportunities, such as this, this COVID crisis, the end of the day shows us all these lockdowns have a severe impact on our economies. Since the economy was the power, the force, the source of force for the European Union so far, um, we have to rethink the entire system, the entire concept, I guess. When our economies will be weaker as they've been before, we will have to go for other instruments of power. That, at the end of the day, this simply fragile construct of international security, the marginalization of the European Union um, and international actors, all of that compresses the end of the day, and I see here the opportunity to grow out of that. Our interest in Europe and our interest in Austria as well was to have this balance, to have this, we call it social peace, in fact. So everybody has enough, not in terms of communism, everybody has the same, but everybody has enough, you don't have to take from anybody away. And when you work, you can increase your social standard. That will not be able, that will not be possible after this COVID crisis. Uh, additionally, we have all the threat, threats mentioned before, such as terrorism, climate change, and so on, and so on, and so on. So we will need a certain assertiveness to maintain our status quo on this planet. And here I see, I see this huge opportunity that out of that we grow again up um, and we stand for our values and we kind of accelerate again. Because to be very honest, Europe was declining after, since World War II pretty much. Our status declined, 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 declined. And at a certain point now, we are now at the juncture to decide, do we accept it to get entirely marginalized or do we scratch the curve? From my point of view, we'll grab this opportunity, grow together and get out of that. It's, it's an interesting point you make about the post-World War II decline. I mean, I, I, I've studied demography quite a bit. And as, if you take the fact that demography can kind of show a trajectory of a nation, um, I do believe the total fertility rate or TFR for most European nations are all in the mid 1.5. And for those not knowing, a total, for total fertility rate of 2.1 keeps the population steady. So overall, the market size has decreased in an individual country. And it looks like the EU has been, as a collective organization, has overcome some of that. But as you put out these challenges that you're facing uh, are starting to break those units apart and they're weaker individually than they are together as a cohesive economic and uh, collective unit. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Hello again, friends. John McElligot here. I want to tell you about another reason for supporting the show. 1CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop 
held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Our host, James Michichi, continues his conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Matthias Vasinga. You touched about the Austrian military has a new cyber unit or a cyber unit that's new, but they have a cyber unit. And then you also, we also talked about how some of the efforts by malign actors, nefarious actors, Russia, uh, to target information operations. Can you discuss how the cyber unit or other parts of your military or even expanding that out to the government is looking to overcome some of those threats and challenges to the information sphere that uh, Russia and other actors are targeting in the European area? So, yes. The first thing everybody has to do, and this is something we, we did as well in Austria, is to achieve this awareness, to inform the people itself that okay, there, there's something going on, and we've been targeted. So year 2020 uh, started with a cyber attack on our, uh, one of our ministries. And it's not been the first time that something like that happened. And when it happened for the very first time, it was like, okay, we, we don't know what that was, and we don't know who was that. Uh, 2020 was pretty much the first time that that was explicitly mentioned and there was even publicly discussed how information campaign campaigns are executed. Ukraine, although it was already years ago, popped up again as a topic how that worked there. So this awareness was at least kind of achieved and was spread out to the people that things are going on. Uh, things are going on and there's always two sides of the coin of this information, how it's spread out. When it comes to the cyber command we are running, there was as well, the first the first step was, okay, we've always had our secure comms net um, within the army, awareness achieving and defensive cyber capacities. That was the first things that, that were kind of the priorities. By doctrine, we don't run offensive cyber um, capacities. However, in order to train your defensive one, you need to have offensive ones as well. So on training purposes, to put it like that, uh, we have this within means and capabilities, offensive capacities as well to improve our defensive uh, capacities. To keep the pace, sticking out to this cyber topic, we try to recruit the youngest brains out of the market. We run competitions to get the smartest brains directly from the market and get them into the armed forces. When it comes to the information domain, splitting that up again, going to this one, well, that, that's a challenge. And the way out of that, difficult. So far, we're on the level of maintaining the awareness, make people understand. Um, when it comes to the European Union, we are as well in awareness building. I know that in the EU military staff, there are discussions ongoing how to do that. So it's, I, I would rather say information domain, work in progress. Uh, cyber domain, defensive uh, capacities built, and interoperability within the European Union, that's a challenge. As we take a look at the, the information in the cyber domain as kind of the top level of more macro, and I'm going to just bring it down a little bit to the micro. And as we are a civil affairs association, I'd like to talk about CIMIC, which is the NATO equivalency of it. So part of the information domain is where the information domain becomes 
real, where it becomes materialized in the human world. And that is usually through populations, specifically civilian populations. What is Austria's role? Do you have CIMIC forces? Are they in talking with vulnerable populations? Are they trained to identify some of these threat, uh, these indicators in them? Or do you uh, even train them with the NATO equivalency groups? So just talk about Austrian CIMIC, the role they play in this greater uh, information competition we have uh, in the globe. We have in the Austrian forces CIMIC elements. They are designated for missions abroad. Those are the specially trained ones. When it comes to the organization, they're even in our training center for deployments. And we have them in, in all our operations pretty much. The tasks for the CIMIC elements are according to AGP-9. So according to NATO doctrine, it's about support the force, support civil, uh, civil authorities, and the civil-mill liaison. That's pretty much in line as well. On a national level, the Austrian Armed Forces run nine regional commands. To put that in an American way, how you see your military, those are like nine combatant commands who are not kind of out of area, expeditionary warfare. They are within Austria. That's linked to our history as well. After World War uh, I, nine regions of the monarchy came together and said, let's do this Austria. And these nine regions kind of pushed for an extremely federal state. So it's a federal organization of the Republic that led the end of the day that we run for these nine, nine regions in Austria, nine regional commands. And those regional commands are something like the competent commands in case of national defense, they would run the operations. So that's the fighting force, if you want like that. And then we have the generating force, this land brigades and air force and so on and so on. So since those nine regional commands are standing commands without forces underneath it, underneath them, everything they do on a day-to-day basis is this civil military coordination and cooperation. So there's this clear uh, distinguishing between the CIMIC forces for operations abroad, a training center for missions abroad, and within Austria, in these nine regional commands, they do that on a daily basis. Linking that again to what I said previously, that in this very moment, 8,000 soldiers are in mission, 800 out of them abroad, 7,200, something like that. In Austria, that's pretty much the main task, what they do on a day-to-day basis. So all of that is border security, COVID, terror, protection, securing whatsoever. All of that is in close coordination with all civil entities. And they do exactly the same things as mentioned in AGP-9 or in your... um, Army Field Manual uh, 357. Yep. That's that's very interesting because, you know, we as a CA force is very much outward focusing, focusing completely. And it's very rare that we do get called up for internal uh, mm-hmm. actions. There is this thing called DISCA, Defense Support to uh, Civil Authorities, which we have under our authorities, but it's very rarely utilized. And it's just very interesting to hear that you have a bifurcated approach or a two, two-way approach in which there is both an internal and an external CIMIC or civil capacity. And so I, I will, you brought up 3-57 and uh, <laughs> I would like to ask you about, I mean, obviously you've learned about uh, some of FMs and army doctrine. You um, were able to participate in the IMET program, which is the International Military Education and Training Program. Um, could you talk about some of your experiences uh, at Fort Leavenworth at the, the Command and General Staff Officers course in school and how you could have made that better or things that uh, you really enjoyed? Thank you for the question. Um, it was the best year of my life. 
Besides, besides that's what everybody that, says. So <laughs> that, that's kind of doctrinal. No, it, it, it was a beautiful year in my life. I, I don't want to miss that. Take into account that 2020 was a difficult year, most likely for the entire global community. It would be highly unprofessional and unfair to say now, okay, they could improve this, that, and that. I think the program itself is extremely beneficial. For me personally, the world became a smaller place than it was before. I met officers from countries. I knew that those countries exist, but that was pretty much this one person I met there. I understood the US point of view on this planet, living there, talking to people, talking to US officers, living together with 1,200 other officers from in total, I guess, 113 nations, if I'm not wrong now. Give me an understanding about this planet, which is, that, that's kind of unique. Besides the fact that before I went to the US, I had a British accent, and now I guess I sound like a Russian living in Kansas. Kansas. Well, what did I take away from all of that? You have a different education approach. We in the Austrian Armed Forces do a bottom-up approach when it comes to education. So our joint uh, general staff course started at the battalion level and then reaching up via brigades, divisions, corps, up to the joint level and then military strategic level, whereas you at CGSC where the U.S. started a strategic level and go down, and going down means pretty much you touch once or twice the brigade level, never ever underneath that. So that was from the approach very interesting. I, I enjoyed the history lessons because it was pretty much lots about Austria, although not the best thing. So <laughs> the Napoleonic Wars, that's nothing an Austrian wants to hear constantly about. There were not so many victories. I really appreciate it to be in a staff group uh, where there were, besides me, just Americans. So there was no other international officer. I was the only one, and there were additional, I guess, 15 or 16 U.S. officers. I heard about your system, how you run the Army, how you run the Air Force. We had a pilot as well in there. But to see that, how that works, what that means for the families, that they get constantly moved around the planet. Uh, and that I know right now that from my class, I guess there's in all time zones on this planet, one from my class. So I have one in South Korea, one in Hawaii, one in Kuwait, and so on. So that's simply impressive how that works. I like this approach, which was very American as well. That's really how you educate adults at the end of the day, because you were not nailed in classroom from 8 o'clock in the morning until 2000. It was pretty much like, okay, within this time frame, you have your presence hours in class and the rest of the day. This is your task. Tomorrow you're capable of discussing the book. I appreciated that. I took away from all of that. It's impressive how the U.S. Army runs a course like that on a yearly basis with that amount of officers. I was impressed at the end of the day how quick they managed to shift from presence time in class to home office, pretty much teleworking, teleclasses, because you have to run something like that pretty much within one week. That was amazing. I, I like to explain that. So when I arrived in Kansas, the first thing I did is was a typical European thing. I bought a car and said, and now I drive direction west and see what will come. And after five hours, I drove back because I understood there, there will nothing come. There, there's nothing at the prairie. So, so that, I, that was simply amazing. So I will take that as your one criticism. Maybe move it to a more urban area so you can actually drive the west or east coast because – no disrespect to Kansas, beautiful state, but as you said, it is a lot of prairie and open land on on either side of it. So, so to give you a, to give you a picture, so to, to drive through Kansas, that was twelve hours. 
in 12 hours. I'm in this very moment in Brussels, driving 12 hours, takes me from Belgium through Luxembourg, Germany, down to Austria, and there to my home, home city of Vienna. So I'm crossing half Europe pretty much in the same amount of time where I'm in Kansas, not leaving the state. And if you really want to get frog, if you really want to get, you can probably hit Liechtenstein too with a 10 minute delay. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So I could, if, if I want to exaggerate, I just turn a little bit to the West and take out France, take Switzerland as well, drive down by Italy, Slovenia, and then up. So in, in 49 hours, I do half Europe. Oh uh, yeah, it's, it is a good experience though. And we're, we're very happy that you were able to participate in it. And so you, you have an exceptionally uh, unique view with your role as an Austrian officer a European uh, member of the European community, but also having this view of you know, America and having the American Armed Forces where you got to participate in the ILE program and then meeting all those officers. So I would like to add this as our closing point. Lieutenant Colonel Vasenja has recently created his own journal where all these important, unique views, his incredible education experience, his PhD, uh, have all come together in what is a culminating effort to create a European defense journal. And if you would just like to elaborate on that and tell the listeners about it, where they can find it, it's coming out very soon, how they can contribute. Uh, it'd be a great way to spread the word about your journal. Thank you very much for that question. The Defense Horizon Journal is your voice on security and defense. That's the initial thing I want to say about that. So even that idea was born in the U.S. I saw that in, in the U.S. you have a broad horizon of online journals, something we, we don't have like that in Europe. And then I thought like, okay, what's what's one of, one of the issues we have in Europe and in Austria as well when it comes to these journals and when it comes to understanding security and defense issues in total. The point was that we have so many initiatives. Unfortunately, they don't overlap. They are not coordinated. Uh, they're pretty much existing in parallel. And the idea was, what about creating an open access platform where all those minds are welcome, where we can facilitate discussion on a professional and an academic level. What about creating something where the young officer as the experienced officer, the academic, the politician, whoever's interested, in fact, the end of the day in a democracy, it has to be the citizen, the normal citizen who wants to, wants to read about those things. What about creating a platform where all those voices are heard where I put my efforts not in producing something myself, writing that and convincing people, but rather me supporting others and getting a publication out. Because we are simply convinced everybody has an opinion and everybody has something to say. And security and defense issues are issues that are in a democracy crucial for everybody. And we want to support people to get to a publication, draw attention of others towards the platform, and then at the end of the day, raise the understanding and awareness that defense and security issues are issues that are not only mine, not only the militaries, not only the police, not only the American whatsoever. No, it's our all topic. Those are global issues, have to be addressed in all domains and have to be commonly understood. That was the idea for the Defense Horizon Journal. And therefore, join the Defense Horizon Journal because it's your voice on security and defense. Well, sir, thank you so much for that and we'll make sure to put the link for the defense horizon journal in the information in this podcast so you guys can visit that 
Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing NATO, Austria's role within European security, your thoughts on the IMET program, and some of the challenges and opportunities facing the very complex and dynamic European and global security environment. So uh, I would like to close on, make sure you please go visit the Defense Horizon Journal and support Lieutenant Colonel Vossinger's efforts to get some of those unique voices in the European security sector. Security and defense is a public good, one of the few and only ones that are actually defined by economists. So he's 100% correct in touching on that. And then in addition, please visit the Civil Affairs Association website. Uh, follow us for more uh, 1CA podcasts and contribute and read the Unomia Journal because I know that Unomia Journal will probably be doing some cross uh, support with the European, uh, with the Defense Horizon Journal in the future. So once again, this is James Machichi thanking you very much for joining us with our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Matthias Wassinger of the Austrian Armed Forces, who is a fantastic guest. And we will be following this up with some probably additional engagements with the journal. Thank you very much and have a great day. If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like so the 1CA podcast team gets important feedback and support. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the 1CA podcast and the Unomia Journal. You can find more podcasts like this on www.1capodcast.org. The Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners in allied countries. New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. If you are not a member yet, please visit the main CA Association website and find a new range of membership options. Don't miss out. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.